Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast from the Aga Khan Museum, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. There's a new generation that has a very unique perspective to how they see themselves as young Muslims in the modern world. I am this wide-eyed girl. I'm like, I want it all. I want to experience it all. Everyone has a story. Sometimes you just have to find out what it is. Like the poem that inspires this podcast, The Guest House, by Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi, we're talking to people who seek meaning and joy in work and life, regardless of what the day brings. Today, South African photographer Gulshan Khan. Some people have asked me in the past, is there anything that you would have liked to have covered in history? And no, I'm really, really, truly at peace with where I am because I was not meant to be in those places or to photograph those things. And I believe that if I'm in a place where I'm photographing, that must mean that there's value in why I'm there and what I need to annotate on this situation or reflect from it. Gulshan Khan was born in South Africa towards the end of apartheid, the government policy of racial segregation. Her parents were anti-apartheid activists, so she grew up highly aware of social justice causes. That background has informed her approach to her craft. Much of her work as a photojournalist explores the ways that apartheid, a policy that ended in the early 1990s, continues to affect the people of South Africa today. Her work has been printed by the New York Times, Washington Post, National Geographic, Agence France Press, and many, many others. In 2018, one of her photos was included in Time Magazine's Top 100 Photos of the Year. But there's another project that's close to her heart, and that's the ongoing documentation of Muslim life and culture in South Africa. She talked to me from her home in Johannesburg about why she's dedicating her time to building that visual record, and about using photography to shine light on social issues. I started by asking her what she remembers about living through those final days of the apartheid era. Being such a young child at that time, we didn't necessarily have the consciousness nor the language or the understanding then to really, you know, understand what was going on at the time. But it was there and we felt it. You know, these things, even before you have a language, you feel it first. And what I think people need to remember is that things didn't simply change for many of us overnight, you know. Yes, people could vote, we could go to parks and beaches where we were not allowed to before. We could use buses and toilets even that we couldn't use before. But structurally, systemically, culturally, even spatially, things did not change, especially in the small towns like the one I grew up in. To tell you a bit more anecdotally or personally from my experience, I remember 
security police being outside our home because like you've mentioned my parents were anti-apartheid activists and there was always things happening even late at night whether they're printing things at home or having meetings you know and we as children didn't always know what was going on and it was only later that I realized what was happening I remember my mom being carried off to jail once in true typical to my mom's personality, she made them sweep out the jail before she, the, the prison cell before she walked in. You know, but we have those memories of being terrorized in, in some ways. So it was not as extreme perhaps 10 years before that, but there were all these instances where we felt it, you know. And then in a small town like ours, there was always spatial apartheid, economic apartheid. So, I mean, our schools got mixed right? Between so-called Indian, so-called colored and black kids. I remember the day this happened. Oh, tell me about that day. Yeah, I, I remember standing in, in lines in assembly and we were all already relatively mixed. Like there'd be one or two kids from, you know, different so-called race classes, but it was literally the school from up the road, which was also, some Indian, some colored kids were in our school, some Indian, some colored kids were up the road, and they walked down to our school, you know, and it was this, we were waiting to welcome students come in, but there were no white children who were mixing with us, right? I mean, the white children went to schools across the river, and even until a few years ago, the policy which said that you had to go to a school closest to your home has only now been re-looked at and changed. And I was only properly exposed to white people, meaning at the same level as me, when I went to university or when I left Ladysmith, um, Nambit. And so you can imagine the psychological and cultural sort of impact of that. We grew up always feeling that white people were superior. And it's crazy because our parents were anti-apartheid activists, right? They held these values of equality, yet on some deep psychological levels, I was afraid of white women. I was afraid of white people. We would have to participate in inter-school competitions now because, you know, apartheid is over and we didn't have the same resources as them. We didn't have grounds or sporting equipment or, you know, textbooks like them. We had maybe 40 to a class sometimes. So... People say that we didn't experience apartheid, but in these ways, we continue to experience it, you know, because in South Africa, inevitably, race and economics are inextricably linked. As you're talking, Gulshan, you know, a very strong and uncomfortable memory comes to me of going to South Africa for the first time many years ago and being in public spaces, cafes, museums, bookshops, on the boardwalk in Cape Town, and being incredibly aware of my race. And feeling that every space I went into meant that those around me would kind of be categorizing me. Was I local? Was I foreigner? Where was I from? What racial group did I belong to? And a lot of assumptions I felt were being made about me on that basis. I guess as you're speaking, Goshan, this is something that must become like second nature of being constantly being forced to assess the world around you in racial terms. 
You are not the first person who has said that to me, probably not the 10th or the 20th either. I mean, I have fellow African friends who come to South Africa and say this, you know, it's almost like you're on high alert in some way. I mean, I'm sure this with a growing black middle class and some transformations happening in the country, perhaps it's not everyone who feels this way, but I think that we are constantly living you know, in a sort of yellow or red zone, not just because of our high crime rates and whatever else, but you go into a restaurant and you watch who's being served first, you know? I think that our psychology is so deeply affected by our history that we almost naturally place people into categories and then assume so many things about them just based on your first view. I mean, my sister and I, you know, growing up in KwaZulu-Natal, we always in a so-called Indian community. And these labels, you know, Indian in colored, I found so reductive. I don't, they were just lazy. Most of my family doesn't even come from actual India. But yes, we would, because my family is so mixed in KwaZulu-Natal, my sister and I would feel more colored. And then we'd go to family in Cape Town and amongst our colored family, we'd feel more Indian, you know. I'll tell you what's really funny, a joke I have between my American friends growing up amongst us here in South Africa, we could never understand why Mariah Carey was black and not colored because, oh, her skin is lighter, you know, or her hair is kind of not as curly. And, you know, we have these ridiculous notions of race that come from all these fallacies that were psychologically embedded in our minds because of our histories. And we're still living with that. And this is, I mean, a large part of my work is really just having these conversations because as much as we're reflecting as South Africans to the rest of the world, I believe it's so important for us to learn each other still because we're still living in our silos, in our little ghettos. And how can we have empathy if we don't know each other, you know? Gulshan got into photography during a student protest movement. Towards the end of 2015, protests spread around the country demanding an end to increases in student fees and more government support for universities. Tens of thousands of students mobilized. Gulshan had just quit an unfulfilling job and was volunteering to support the protesters. You know, they'd be occupying the Great Hall, for example, at the Wits University and staying there. So people were bringing food and whatever they needed. And I would help with that. And I would take some of the food afterwards to people who were living on the streets around there or to the churches. And being part of that and being part of the protests, I was also bearing witness to something that I think was going to be or was already historically significant. But then I was also witness to things like police brutality or the overuse of force. And I would photograph it using my phone because I instinctively wanted to document this or not just firstly to document it, but I instinctively wanted to show it to other people because I felt like it was necessary for people to see what was happening. And so I was photographing on my phone and 
at some point I used my partner's sort of camera on program because <laughs> I didn't know how to use a camera. I had no idea what was shutter speed or aperture and anything like that. And That's amazing. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I would put these pictures on Instagram and people would ask me to feature them or, you know, to publish them. And then it was actually Zubair, my partner, who said, why don't you formalize this? You know, you're not studying or working right now. So I went to the Market Photo Workshop and did a year-long course on photojournalism and documentary photography. And yes, when I went there, I could not use a camera. I got in with these images made on my phone. <laughs> I remember the program manager <laughs> giving out these forms, which to assess your knowledge, asked what is shutter speed and what is aperture. And as he handed it to me, he said, I'm so sorry, Gulshan, I know you don't know anything. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. Honestly, I, I, I remember so many moments when I said to myself, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> you know, there's something really exciting about hearing that as you're speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear that your craft, which we'll talk about in just a moment, which is Gulshan is stunning. Thank you. Really emerges from a deep engagement in the world. Yes. And that to me is a powerful place to start. Well, that was 2016, right? I only started working as a photographer in 2017, but I was published for the first time at the end of 2016. Alhamdulillah. I mean, someone said to me, I think it was two years ago, he said to me that well, you're not actually a photographer. And I was quite jarred by that. I mean, obviously I was quite, you know, upset. And he said to me, the thing is, and he's right, I am not a technical photographer in a sense of, I don't want the latest gear, I don't want the latest lenses. Don't ask me about all these things that these new cameras can always do. Or, you know, I use my camera very instinctively and I photograph very instinctively. It almost feels meditative. And then you can tell I'm struggling to explain this because I don't completely understand it myself. But yes, it does feel like I'm just, I'm a conduit for something. And I think a lot of us as artists, if we're working you know, from the heart and we're working authentically. And I mean, I try, we're learning every day. We all have our blind spots, but I try as hard as I can to stay close to my heart and when I'm doing this work and to be as respectful as I can. You know, I, when I go to your website and I know our listeners will after hearing this conversation and they'll look at your work, they're going to find you chasing waterfalls on Reunion Island. They're going to see you tracking down rhino poachers on the African savanna. They're going to see you documenting small town America. What calls you to a particular project? Is there something that happens inside you that says, okay, I'm feeling the right vibration. This is what I need to get into at this moment. You know, I really wish that I could just feel the right vibration, <laughs> but I mean, all the time and then pick and choose. You know, I started working for the wire agencies. So I would photograph all sorts of different stories, right? And you have a choice, but also there wasn't much choice back then, which I was grateful for because I was doing such, like you said, expansive, different topics. I was seeing different spaces, meeting different people, which is always wonderful. So for the most part, yes, I was incredibly happy to cover everything that I covered. I only had one bad experience at the time where I remember not wanting to do this, but also wanting to do this assignment 
almost everything for me, you know, in its essence comes back to some social justice issue or to some politics or history. And that inevitably means that I'm interested in it. And sometimes I have to question whether I'm the right person to do it. You know, who am I in relation to what I'm photographing? What is the power dynamic? And so there have been moments where I have said no to some editorial assignments. This was post working for the wire agency. So I had more of a, I could say yes or no. And I also had to come to a place where I realized that whatever is good for me, inshallah, will happen, you know. And I had to start to listen to my gut about what I didn't feel was right. And I had to learn that the hard way and to always be at peace. Because some people have asked me in the past, is there anything that you would have liked to have covered in history or a moment in time that you would have loved to have been? And, and no, I'm really, really truly at peace with where I am because I was not meant to be in those places or to photograph those things. And I believe that if I'm in a place where I'm photographing, that must mean that there's value in why I'm there and what I need to annotate on this situation or reflect from it. But yes, now if there's this thing of having to put food on the table and take care of families back home, you know, so... <laughs> we're that, that, that little you know, thing. It's all, yeah, just a slight little thing that we have to do that's always at the back of your head. So it's not always, you know, it's sometimes it's a privilege to be able to pick and choose. But for the most part, I am usually interested, you know, in what I'm presented with in front of me. I'm going to use my interviewer's conceit, Goshan, <laughs> and ask you to tell me a little bit about that difficult situation that you alluded to, the bad one. I'm going to send you my therapist bowl after this. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you, I will share it. No, I mean, also, I think that sharing experiences means we can resonate with each other. So what happened was I was working for the wire agencies at the time, and it was a time when there was all this talk about white genocide in South Africa and white farmers being killed, and then Trump had something to say about it, and it just went viral. And for us here in the country, we know that that is not true. There's no such thing as white genocide here, you know? So the agency wanted to do a story on this from the white farmer's perspective. And I was going to be doing the visuals, and how this would work is ordinarily you work with a writer, a videographer, and a photographer. And at the time, I thought, okay, there must be at least one person of color on this team, you know, at the very least, to do the story. But what I didn't realize was that I didn't have complete sort of control of the narrative or how it was going to be presented. And because it was for a wire agency, you're pretty much producing stock photographs that can be used by anyone for anyone and would not necessarily be attached to the story that was produced. And so I went on this assignment and was faced with the last outposts of apartheid uh, <laughs> and people who were still of the old beliefs that we should be segregated, that life was better before. Some of them straight to my face would say completely racist things and it was quite traumatizing. And I had to obviously now be in a position where I have a job to do and do that job well 
And like I said, it shows in your images. I mean, it, I think looking back at those images, you can see that I don't like these people. I'm, I'm the way I photographed them. It was not like I had the most respect for these people, you know, um, and this is where we talk about objectivity and the myth of objectivity in, in mass media, because Western media has told us that, you know, the observances are objective and journalism is objective. And it absolutely isn't. We have to be absolutely honest about that. So it was quite a traumatic assignment. I remember getting back into the car and the, the writer, as we got in, cause I was tearing up. I held it in until the moment when I got back into the car and he said, well, these are like monsters. You know, their beliefs are just, you don't realize that this still exists and it does. And so that was a hard lesson to learn. At the same time, I would not say no to these stories because I think I have grown since then and I have a better sort of hold over how I manage my emotions even and how I manage uh, being around people and how much of what. I receive, I allow to let in. So it was a tough assignment, but a lot of lessons learned. One of the biggest lessons was, like I said, that image was on the wires. So they ended up sometimes being used by these right-wing publications. And I was like, oh, yeah, Allah, help me. <laughs> I remember being in a media room and, and this, these guys were like, Gulshan, was that you? You made those pictures. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was me, but it wasn't me. <laughs> you know, there's a pretty remarkable journey and story about how Islam came to South Africa. And I know that part of your work has been to tell the story of South African Muslims and South African Islam. Did you know about that rich history growing up or is it something that you had to seek out? I definitely had to seek it out. Even growing up in a very spiritual family, a family who, you know, it was a very much an Islamic environment that we grew up in, but we didn't learn about our histories, right? I remember saying this at a talk I gave in Amsterdam, that I wanted to be Volrad Voltmada growing up. So he's this white Afrikaans man who saved people from a sinking ship with his horse. And that's what we learned about. And to me, he was a hero and I wanted to be him. <laughs> this little brown girl from Ladysmith and Nambit who wanted to be Volrad Voltmada. So <laughs> that is what we learned about, you know? In our history books, we certainly didn't learn the history of Islam or, and for that matter, the history of our own ancestry. I mean, I think also, you know, not to take away from my parents at that time, I think so many people were just living and trying to live the best they could and trying to make change also, you know, there wasn't always time to talk about these things, but also, and even until now, the histories are painful. It's not an easy history to talk about. So even when I go home or when I talk to my mom or talk to family, some of them are reluctant to speak about the history. But no, we didn't learn this. Yeah, I had to seek it out. Mm. It's a history of enslavement, mm. of incarceration, of indenture. It's a history of people, particularly the first 
Muslims who arrived in the Cape, uh, freedom fighters, really, who were taken away from their homes in Indonesia and on this incredible journey brought via modern-day Sri Lanka to Cape Town. From many islands, actually, from many places, yes. Yes, and incarcerated on places like Robben Island long before Nelson Mandela or Ahmed Katrada or any of the great names of the anti-apartheid movement were there. It is it is a really incredible story. But it was one of your photographs, actually, that reminded me the penny drop moment in my relationship with South African Islam. And there's a photograph in your series of documenting South African Islam of a man who's wearing a kufi, his eyes are closed, hands raised to heaven. There's someone playing a simple frame drum in the background. And there's an incredible sense of devotion. And that photograph transported me back to Mashhad al-Awwal in Bokap in Cape Town. It reminded me of one of the most moving spiritual experiences my wife and partner Farina and I have ever had in a Muslim space, and that was in that mosque. And arriving during the beginning of the recitation of the Gadat, this hymn, this litany of remembrance that is so peculiar and germane to the experience of Cape Malay Muslims. But it was the mix of Dutch hymns and Indian ghazals and and the indigenous music of the people of the Cape who are no longer with us that all of a sudden came together. And it was just, I mean, it seems superlative and like a little bit cliche, but it was one of those boom, (laughs) mind-blowing moments that I was experiencing something so, so beautiful. What is South African Islam to you? I want to say first, you know, the fact that you resonated with that image, it was not made in Cape Town, it was made in Johannesburg, but speaks to the shared experience, right? Of what a shared faith, a shared, uh, not even a shared faith, but just resonance across the board in terms of humanity can do to people. But the Cape Malay tradition, which is also part of my family heritage, I understand completely what you mean when you say it's something you know, so different to anything else. And I think this speaks to Islam in the Cape in general, because it really was, I mean, Creole, you know, if there was ever a word to describe the culture. It was really a mix of many, many things. And also, I think we must not negate the ideas of how inspirational it was for slave peoples, right? When people were coming together to mobilize, to build solidarity, it was using Islamic spaces, Islamic understanding, building community around this to strengthen, you know, that movement against slavery, to give each other hope. And that is very much a part of the origins of Islam in this country. And I mean, for that matter, and I do want to speak a little bit about this, the fact that the first Afrikaans, which is later on became the language of the oppressor, the a white nationalist project. But the first written Afrikaans was in Arabic script. It was the language of the people. Not many people know that. Not many South Africans know this about the language or that it's spoken more by people of color in the country than white people. And we spoke it at home. We still speak it at home. But of course, we speak Afrikaans 
you know, not Afrikaans, it's a different dialect. But yes, so the Islam of the Cape and the Islam of Johannesburg and the Islam of Durban is also very different to each other. But yes, it is a powerful history in the Cape specifically. The fact that Robben Island prison was built not for apartheid dissidents, but for dissidents of colonialism, you know, they were brought here to keep them away from causing trouble elsewhere and banished to Robben Island. And I mean, so much of erasure in this history. We have documentation of Muslims in South Africa, but for the most part, they existed in silos. They didn't exist in mainstream media. Certainly, they didn't exist in our textbooks. So there's that history, and there's also the history of my hometown, because we, in the Anglo-Boer Wars, they were fought in Ladysmith, where I grew up. And some of my ancestry from the other side of the family were brought from Afghanistan to fight in the Anglo-Boer War by the British. And I'm still looking for grave sites, because most of the graves and the uh, places of historical value were places where British and Boer soldiers died. But we had doctors come from Afghanistan, fighters, you know, and that were just not acknowledged. So, yes, uh, Islam is inextricably linked to the politics, to the land, to the history. But yes, uh, Pisang is banana in Afrikaans and it's Pisang is banana in Indonesia, whereas Banan is banana in Amsterdam. So that alone can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the legacies of this, of the filtration of our Creole languages and culture. You know, Creole is such a is such an evocative word, isn't it? Because immediately you get a sense of unusual things mixing together to create beauty and flavor and taste. And, and, and I almost feel like, you know, when I look at the photographs that you've published and put out there connected to your Islams in South Africa project in a way, it is this incredible Creole culture because there's so many facets to it. But there's one photograph that really stands out for me, and that's of a girl riding a carousel. <laughs> she my has her favorite. hijab, her abaya, her, uh, her, her abaya <laughs> on. It's waving in the wind. The picture is a little bit out of focus, but you know that she's like screaming with excitement. And you look at that picture and you smile right away because we've all had that experience. And then as you look closer, I'm like, oh man, I want to know. I want to know your story and I want to know the story of this picture. Can you tell us the story of that of that amazing picture? That is one of my favorite images that I've ever made. I'm still, when I look at it, I feel like I am her and she is me and we are just, you know, little girls still, you know, exploring this world. It means so much to me, that image. This image was made at the Sultan Bahu Fate, which is, if you know Sultan Bahu, a fascinating story because the masjid was previously a church and a temple and the church bell still is still in the mosque and a few years ago i photographed this sort of reunion of communities where the Kerk africana community were invited back to the masjid and for the first time these two communities sat in the same space and had conversations because i mean it wasn't so long ago when we had apartheid and for the first time, there were these honest conversations, you know, between two communities. So uh, Sultan Bahu for me is a very special place because also, you know, they've had, the community has had, and this is the case with many of the Sufi masjids 
where it's just not a place for men to go and pray. You know, it was their clinics and orphanages and old age homes and really community spaces, you know, all encompassing or a space of robust discussion and politics and culture, which is ideally what masjids should be. And so the Sultan Bahu Fate is an annual event where communities come together. You will see so many of the Somali community, you know, Ethiopian communities, um, many of the Arab communities all coming together. And you would have experienced Ford's but like that when you were here. It's a sort of transitionary space, migratory space. And the fate shows that. And when I saw this little girl, I just, you know, I think I stood there for the longest time trying to make an image that I was happy with because it was a pan to show the movement and the joy that I was feeling watching her. There's very little, or not little, but not as much imagery of Muslim girls and Muslim women that show joy, right? You know, African women, African children have always been seen with these sort of, you know, suffering and flies in the eyes and, you know, just these portrayals of, of uh, do not show our full humanity. And so for me, it's very important to have as many voices at the table in this way to show, you know, to to show the full spectrum of our humanity, or at least as much as we can of that. Yes, it's a very special image to me. Goshen Khan, who or what would you like to welcome into your guest house? Peace. I think that is the continuous balancing act. You know, we can't take a step forward without being put off balance. So the dua I always make is for peace and to have the ability to find peace continuously because it's something that is a continuous journey, I think will be throughout our lives. Goshen Khan, this has been an honor and a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much for joining me on This Being Human. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can find links in the show notes to some of Golshan's incredible photography. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton with production assistance from Abi Raheja. Our executive producer is Lisa Gabriel. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Katie O'Connor is TVO's senior producer of podcasts. Laurie Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Muslim civilizations around the world. For more information about the museum, go to www agahanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human.